Hello, this is Evidence-Based GI and ACG production. Today, we'll be discussing the use of small molecule agents for the management of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. With me is Dr. Oriana Damas, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and we'll be discussing a recent summary that reviews the phase three randomized control trial examining the use of ozonamide, a sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulator for the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Dr. Damas, welcome. And can we just start by discussing a little bit about the use of small molecule agents for managing ulcerative colitis, because there are a few out there to use. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. And I'm happy to be discussing today about small molecules. So, you know, small molecules have really, I would say, revolutionized the way that we think about advanced therapies. As a matter of fact, we now think about Instead of using the term biological therapies, we now consider advanced therapies as a more comprehensive term to really think about when we're positioning different types of treatments, which include biologics and small molecules. So small molecules are now more considered to be positioned in a place where a second line treatment, particularly right now available for ulcerative colitis. So that includes the JAK inhibitors who are tofacitinib and UPA most recently approved and available in the market. And now we have ozonimod also available for ulcerative colitis. You know, just for our listeners, so ozonimod's trade name is Zaposia, and this is a sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulator. And as I understand it, it works by binding to a receptor on lymphocytes, and then those lymphocytes become inactive and don't really participate in the inflammatory reaction. So is that how they're expected to work? Yeah, exactly. Just how we have the lymphocyte uh, traffic blockers on the end of betaluzumab, right? The anti-integrants, the S1P receptor modulator inhibitors act in the other way, just by preventing right these lymphocytes from even living, leaving the, the, the lymphocytic tissue in the first place. So it's another way to block traffic, so to speak. And ultimately, as we talk about lab monitoring, that means we have to monitor these patients to see if their lymphocyte counts drop too precipitously. So, you know, as we've talked about, you generally think of these small molecule agents like ubidacinitinib, which is more commonly referred to as Renvoke, as treatments for patients who may have failed anti-TNF agents. Is that generally where you think about this? Correct. We generally think about the JAK inhibitors as second or third line treatments, particularly in patients who have a more moderate to severe phenotype of ulcerative colitis. Why that is, is because of the side effect profile of these medications as compared to other agents that we have available for the treatment of moderate to severe UC, which includes vetaluzumab, ustekinumab, and obviously the anti-TMS. You know, the study we're discussing today is, is a New England Journal of Medicine article from about one year ago, where Bill Sanborn was the lead author, which was entitled Ozonamod for Induction and Maintenance of Ulcerative Colitis. And This was basically two randomized control trials being reported. The first was a a 10-week 
induction of remission, RCT, and then they took the patients who had had at least a clinical response and followed them for another 42 weeks in a placebo-controlled RCT for maintenance of remission. And, and the name they had for this study was True North. Not exactly sure how they got there. But I think the main thing for our listeners to understand is that these were patients that had moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, that the definition of, of clinical remission was based on a three-point Mayo score, which included getting a zero on rectal bleeding. So essentially no rectal bleeding, a score of zero to one on stool frequency, meaning essentially no diarrhea, and an endoscopy subscore of zero to one, meaning at least visually very minimal inflammation at it all being seen uh, on endoscopy. And that the patients were taking ozonamide at 0.92 milligrams a day versus placebo in both the induction of remission and, and maintenance of remission aspects of this trial. So they enrolled about 600 or so patients. What did you think of the results of this, Dr. Damas? Yeah, I think you've nicely summarized the, the methods of the study. And I think there, you know, it's always good to look at what when you're looking at a, a, an RCT that they include not just clinical remission, but obviously also now look for endoscopic and mucosal healing as one of the endpoints as well. And the other thing I'd like to comment on the method section is that they also nicely delineate a breakdown of prior medication exposures, which nowadays, um, since we have so many available therapies available, it's going to be increasingly important to really understand to position these types of medications. So it's nice to know, you know, break down how patients performed when they were exposed to prior different types of advanced therapies. So with that in mind, I think the drug performed decently. I think you can see that there was clinical remission as a difference during the induction period compared to placebo, like a 12.4 percentage difference with clinical response in about 20% with a subset of patients achieving endoscopic and mucosal healing. So I think, you know, this is kind of like the therapeutic ceiling that we see in many of the medications, right? That you don't get all of the patients or this dramatic change in response, but you can capture some of the patients who are starting this new medication. And keep in mind that many of these patients had been exposed to previously anti-TNFs in particular. And so it really represents another medical tool by which we can offer our patients with more of a refractory type of disease phenotype. And, you know, as you said there, many of these patients had been previously treated with other anti-TNF agents or small molecules. And specifically, it was 18, excuse me, it was 18.4% remission in the treatment group versus 6% in the placebo group for induction of remission. They had a lower threshold that they called clinical response, which meant at least a, a 30% improvement from baseline in your symptoms. And that, that occurred in 47.8 with ozonamide mm -hmm. versus about 26% with placebo. Mm -hmm. And then once you had patients who at least had that clinical response who entered the maintenance of remission, that at 42 weeks further, 37% of the people on ozonamod 
had maintained clinical remission versus 18.5% in placebo, so pretty much doubled it. I think the thing that's of concern for our listener is that there are a lot of warnings and some substantial additional testing that needs to be done before you start somebody on ozonamide. Can you mention a couple of those things? Yes, absolutely. So just by the nature of the way that the drug works, right, by by blocking lymphocyte trafficking, it's important to get a CBC, right, and to monitor that over time because lymphopenia was common in about a half of the patients in the trial. And I've also seen it in my experience as one of the most common side effects within the first three months. So CBC is really important to get and monitor for um, throughout the process. Important to think about in terms of the side effects that were described during the trial and how you screen for several things, including an EKG at baseline as its study can. The study did show that there was some bradycardia. So this is actually why the medication is introduced slowly over a period of a week to really prevent that decrease in heart rate. So important to get an EKG, a CBC. There were increase in uh, liver enzymes reported in the trial. So important to monitor the liver chemistries and actually even consider whether your patient population, if you have a history of patient, uh, a patient who has abnormal liver enzymes, whether that this is the right medication for that patient, right? It may not be. And also thinking about things that in particular disease states may be worse. For example, there was a reported a rare increase in worsening, or I should rather say developing of macular in some patients. So should you start patients with a history of uveitis on this medication? Perhaps not. Or patients with history of diabetes. That's actually the subset of patients that I normally send for ophthalmology screenings prior to starting this medication, just because they're at so much higher risk of developing complications of eye diseases in general. And, and just in general, if they have a history of prior serious infections, this may not necessarily be the drug for them. But these are just general recommendations. So EKG, CBC, liver chemistries. Oh, important to make sure that they're also vaccinated, right, for Shingrix or right around the time that they're going to start this medication as well. Right. I think that's important for our listeners to understand that this medication, which was previously approved for multiple sclerosis and assessed in that population, was found to have several rare side effects, but it's all on the list in the prescribing information and the prescriber needs to be aware about this and talk about it with the patient. So just to list them again, there's a risk for bradycardia when the drug first is started. So you have to start at 0.23 milligrams a day for four days, then go to 0.46 milligrams for three days. And then you ultimately hit the standard dose of 0.92 milligrams to minimize any risk of bradycardia. You don't want to use it if somebody has a history of second or third degree heart block. So you have to get an EKG first. It's been associated with severe sleep apnea. So if somebody starts out with a lot of snoring, you might not want to use it. It has been shown to double AST and ALT. So, you know, you need to monitor that. And then, as you said, there's no doubt that it was also associated rarely with macular edema. So you might want to avoid it in somebody with uveitis in the past associated with their IBD. And finally, as you said, there's definitely an increased risk of developing herpes zoster. So people should absolutely get vaccinated against herpes zoster before they started. 
That sounds scary, but all those risks are very small. But having said that, you know, where's this fit in? Now that we have all these different medications, the anti-integrin medications, the anti-IL-1223 medications, you know, the anti-TNF agents, which are our standard, as well as now the JAF-1 inhibitors, kind of tough to figure out where to fit all this in. Yeah, and, and I think that's really the most important question of the moment, right? So as we have more available drug therapies in the market, which is great for patients, we still are lagging behind on the research that really allows us to understand and or predict how patients are going to respond to each treatment. And so I think we lack biomarkers and we also lack really comparative effectiveness studies comparing many of these different studies, right? As you were mentioning, this was paired to placebo and most of the IBD trials are comparing drug to placebo. Very few of them are really comparative to head-to-head, drug to drug. And so until that is available, we're left in this state where we have to consider different aspects of the patient. So it's really about the art of medicine. So thinking about what was your prior biologic exposures, thinking about what is the patient phenotype, In UC, that tends to get a little bit less complicated, right? Because in in Crohn's disease, where we think about fissualizing, perianal, in UC, we just tend to think more about its disease state, right? More about whether they sit on moderate to severe disease. And also we think about their prior biological exposure. And so thinking about those two things in combination with comorbidities, and lastly, I shall add patient preference. That's really where we sit as IBDologists right now, thinking about when we're starting a different medication with our patients. I think you you talk about the risks and benefits of these different medications with the patients and, and do shared decision-making. As you mentioned to me before, you know, somebody who's under the age of 50, who's not going to be at risk for cardio or pulmonary complications like sleep apnea or heart block might be an ideal person if they have moderate disease. But I guess the other concern is if it's a woman of childbearing age, we don't really have safety data in pregnancy here, whereas we do with anti-TNF agents. And that's someplace we really need to get some better data. And I guess I'd note from a previous podcast we did, although there aren't head-to-head trials, at least in network meta-analyses, upadacinitinib, you know, the trade name we're invoke, that's at least shown based on the magnitude of response versus placebo for moderate severe UC to appear to be most effective in network meta-analyses. And that's something else you would only use after somebody's failed an anti-TNF agent. Other things that you think we need to do in future research to figure out where to Gosh, put this So much more. And and I shall say that I think that, you know, these network meta-analyses have surfaced really because of a need and a lack of data on comparative head-to-head, right? And and, and I would caution with, you know, interpreting directly these network meta-analyses into clinical practice because they do, you know, in the end, kind of compile data that are uh, comparing drug to placebo in different cohorts. Mm -hmm. And so- you know, the data is very heterogeneous within these different cohorts, really hard to, to say this is really what's going to change clinical practice. And I think we have to be cautious with those interpretations of these type of trials. But you're right. I mean, so far, the data does suggest that Jack and inhibitors, right, can be nicely positioned in patients with severe disease over, for example, betaluzumab when it comes to second and third line 
changing. So what do I see the future? I think we need, you know, obviously the, the golden chalice about finding biomarkers, right, that would allow us to predict. And I, I think we're getting there, but we're not there yet. And I think that's going to be extremely valuable to us and to patients in order to be able to predict. I also think that we need more head-to-head -head studies, if I haven't mentioned that enough. I will, again, I think that's super important as we have more and more therapies available so that we can better have a conversation with our patients that, you know, is obviously a, a conversation between both of us, but that is very informed in those ways. Because right now, as I mentioned to you, there's just these different aspects that we look at, but without a lot of data to support which one to do next. And then lastly, I, I will make a plug for having studies that incorporate lifestyle into assessments of, of clinical endpoints and, and all sorts of other outcomes. Why? Because, for example, as a, as a nutrition researcher, I realize how heterogeneous diets can be of patients and how much of an impact diet can have on outcomes in terms of all sorts of inflammation-related outcomes. So even quality of life, you can argue, right? So I think that we really truly should start to incorporate at least some sort of dietary assessment in, in clinical trials, because I think that will allow us to at least account for that. And, and we may find that there are subgroups of patients with healthier diets who are generally doing better, right? So, so that's going to be also very important for future studies. Well, there's no doubt to, to quote past song lyrics that the future is looking bright for the management of these IBD patients. And, and thanks so much for joining us today. I'm sure this has been very informative for our listeners. Thank you for having me.